Welcome to the CDC Podcast. I'm joined today by old school critic Kirk Battle, formerly known as LB Jeffries. Uh, how's it going, Internet? We're trying to have a new direction to focus on the critics and op- open up the dialogue and how they see the critical world in as through their eyes. So, Kirk, can you go into your background a little? Like, how did you get into video game criticism? Well, uh, after college, I freaked out and went out to Tahoe, and then I taught creative writing, and I ended up uh, at a government job in Columbia, and... You know, I was bored, and so I started blogging a lot just about, like, random TV shows and stuff or movies and things like that. And, you know, after you've, like, count, you start to get a little restless. So I got a video game console, and, you know, I'd always played, particularly, like, PC games. I played those a lot, but uh, I started, like, seriously blogging about it in, like, the winter of 06 was when all this was happening. And uh, after a couple of months at it, I got an email from... No, I applied, actually. I take that back. The, the email was something separate. Now I remember. A buddy of mine who was a huge reader at Pop Matters said, you know, hey, I hear that they're hiring video game people. You should uh, send them a resume. I remember this now. It's coming back to me. Sorry. And I sent them a review of Twilight Princess, and it's terrible. Uh, I remember rereading it uh, a few weeks ago and thinking about how crazy it was. That was back... You know, when you had the, the um, when you, uh, when you first start writing about video games, the impulse is to like compare it to all this like cool artsy stuff. And so you try to, I was like making like Hemingway references and everything. That might have been a little bit much. And so anyways, that was, you know, years ago now. Now it's all coming back to me. And we just started from there. And after a year of writing reviews, started up a weekly column. And that was an intense thing. According to uh, the internet, that review came out in 2007. Oh, gosh. Okay, so yeah, see, I'm not getting my April. right. April of 2007, the Twilight Princess review. I'm going to have to read this now. Oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's the scary thing is you can't, uh, all those people who got published in magazines, you know, no one has to see their starting articles. They don't ever get caught for them. But, for, but your work is forever there. Yeah, I wouldn't say I, I mean, it took a couple of months of writing video game reviews before, you know, you, you, you learn fast when you're doing it, that you sort of, the things that like don't make sense and things where you're kind of stretching. But yeah, when I was first starting, I remember, I feel like it's like the classic symptom is when you start referencing like really, really large stretches of like comparing it to Shakespeare or something, you know, and it's sort of like it's not necessary most of the time. You see that actually a lot of nowadays where it seems to be moving into that direction because we haven't fully figured out how to talk about video games just as video games that people can understand as a whole. Mm -hmm. So now there's a lot of metaphors and comparisons to try and get the ideas across. It's definitely, well, it's not that, um, I'm not saying that the practice is wrong. It's just that, like, uh, there's sort of, there's a right way to do it and there's a wrong way. And I feel, I know my first misstep was trying way too hard. So, you know, when you sort of, I've just always thought that for a critic, like, restraint is really key. Um, you don't want to fall into, like, the Seth Schiesel trap, you know? No, please explain. I, maybe this is also just my trajectory as a critic, is I just steadily became more restrained. So, like, like that Zelda review, for example, I start off, I think I, like, compare Ganon to, like, a Shakespeare character or something like that, you know? And 
in the one hand, like you can sort of, it's not a bad analogy, but it's also sort of, I guess to me, overselling it. Like, I think that the game's virtues and appeals don't necessarily come from its similarities to Macbeth or something like that, right? It, it could. I don't, I don't know. It all depends, I guess, on the individual game. But uh, back when you first got the column, you uh, started up with what you called Zarathustran Analytics. Yeah, yeah. Can you still ex- can you explain that all these years later? It didn't even make a lot of sense when we did it. I uh, I was just reading a lot of Nietzsche, and my editor was sort of uh, we were desperate for material at the time, like content, because it was just me and him writing, and so. I was just sort of like, can I just call this, you know, like, I think my idea was that it would be like sort of a great way to describe like analyzing video games, but while still focusing on the individual, like uh, in my mind that, you know, the Zarathustra thing's all about individuality and asserting your own identity and achieving things. So I was like, oh, that seems like a good like framing for video games. And then I sort of forgot about it after a while. I don't I think I'd shortened it to ZA critique after a while. Yeah, well, it takes up less space in the title bar. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because I noticed that it did seem to disappear after a while. I, like, I read it some, like, a year after you finished publishing it. And I, I thought it was amazing, even though I didn't fully get it. But upon re-looking at it, I realized, wow, we're relearning a lot of concepts that you just, like, put out the basics for in this 10 article series. Oh, thank you very much. That It was funny. I had already been working on that series, and my editor was seeing them appear on my private blog, and he was like, you want to just post those at Pop Matters? And uh, they ended up being a big hit. I, I was shocked, actually. I'd never... You know, my private blog is not... I, I mean, I don't get a lot of readers there ever, so I'm always sort of surprised when something takes off just because it's on a different website. Uh, speaking of which, where did banana pepper martinis come from? You know, that one's just in the shrouds of time, man. I don't, uh, that was in college. I've been writing on that blog since 2005. That's why my dates are also mixed up, because it's sort of the video games. I've been writing for a couple of years, you know, and then uh, video games just, I started talking about them a little bit, and then I, I got obsessed with them. And I still, I'd say they're the main thing I write about when I do now. But, Banana pepper martinis just it seemed like an idea for a drink. Uh, I think I was back in college when I first started the blog, and they're disgusting. They're a- absolutely terrible. <laughs> but that didn't stop me uh, back when I was 22 from trying one. They're, don't ever drink one. <laughs> I, I was about to ask, have you ever tried a banana pepper martini? It doesn't sound like it would be good. You know, you just need the one, which is probably, I think was like my joke about the blog, is you just need to drink one of them, you kind of, you get the idea. <laughs> what about the pseudonym L.B. Jeffries? Uh, where did, well, why? You know, lawyers are really conservative, paranoid people by nature, and so there was this sort of, no one was really sure about, you know, what kind of anonymity protections you would have, and is it a good idea for me to be putting stuff online? So I was like, oh, I better use a fake name. And I've always been a Hitchcock fan, and the character in Rear Window, to me, you know, it just it just kind of clicked. It just seemed like a perfect idea for a character. 
Yeah, and you you became very well known for uh, that image of the man with the apple in front of his face that became L.B. Jeffries online. Ah, uh, yeah, I was super into branding. I um, that was a uh, yeah with Michael Abbott's website. He had those little image things, and that was I remember like uh, that was when avatars were starting to become like the common feat. Like they'd always existed, you know. But they were starting to become like a feature, like on every website. So on Brainy Gamer and The Escapist, like everywhere I could, I would stick that big uh, Rene Marguerite painting. Because I see that other people use that just as random because it's a cool looking image. And I said, oh my god, LB Jeffries commented on this post. And then I read the name and it says, oh no, it's someone else. Never mind. Oh. <laughs> well, it's kind of, I mean, it's, just how, a, it's such a classic idea. Yeah. That's how thick the branding is for that. <laughs> and you could sort of, I followed you. I followed you right after that, the, the idea of the unchanging icon and the iconic name to go with it. Mm-hmm. I just chose it with the title to keep everything simple. No, yeah, I definitely, uh, the GC thing, I remember when your stuff first started coming out, and you definitely stuck with the same thing, and it works, you know? But uh, as you went on with Zathura and Analytic, you uh, used it as, as like a direct concept to explore the idea of what was behind a game, like what was the whole, like a game getting at it. I remember you did it with the darkness and trying to figure out behind like just the shooting and the gangsters, like where did all the elements coalesce to mm-hmm. what was the point behind it. And the other one I remember that you did it with was with Okami, where you spent most of the time saying, yeah, yeah, it's a great art style. Now let's, and you ended up really digging into Okami and like we realized you were really harsh on it and you could just try to cut people off. He says, yes, it's very beautiful, but there's nothing else here. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> I wasn't that mean to it. I just... Tried to preempt it all. I was trying to, well, you just don't want to piss people off. I sort of, so many people will write articles and just be kind of like, they don't, like, if you're going to give a mixed review of a game, I feel like you really have to do mixed. So many people will sort of bash it for like 80% of the article and then be like, but I liked this stuff. And so I gave a mixed review, so don't get so mad. And you're like, no, I mean, you're going to have to be articulate about it if the game is genuinely. You know, if you're just going to bash it, you know, take the gloves off and do it. But I, I remember Okami just sort of, it just lost all its direction. That was my big complaint about the game. And then, you know, you can check the stats on Wii games for how many hours they've gone. And that, it's like a, I figure it's on the website or what, but I pulled some figure off a website and everyone quit the game at about the same time I did. And so... It was like a really significant figure, and I was like, I mean, there must just be something about this game that makes people phase it out. Like, you just... And it's not like I didn't... I played it for like 20 hours, you know? But after a while, it's just not enough to keep you playing after a while. That's really weird, because I finished it without too much problems. Did you... Someone was telling me that the development cycle of the game, it's basically sort of like three different games. Like, once you beat the Dragon Boss, it, like, totally changes and becomes this different setup. I never really thought... Of that. You mean, like, the, the, the eight-headed snake? Yeah, yeah, you beat that, and then it sort of expands as, as the new force of evil sort of takes hold. And then it's more like four different sections with a lot of side stories... And I guess you could say that by the fourth section, it's possibly worn out its welcome. Mm. Some parts are just too big. But 
I guess it's because I haven't really been used to the Zelda structure, and that's why I was able to get through it so easily. As well as its lack of predictability, I, I remember that was that was one of the first times I started to realize that if you just totally have kind of like an incoherent like structure, and there's no, I mean, the game feels really free form if you play it right. Like you just kind of get power ups randomly. The dungeons sort of. That, like, they'll be, like, you'll go in, like, one giant dungeon that takes, like, the one in the forest took, like, four hours, three hours of dicking around with, like, children and stuff. And I remember just sort of, you know, you appreciate, like, how formulaic Zelda is more because you sort of realize that you can, like, structure your gameplay better. I don't know if that makes sense. Somewhat. Well, I guess, like, for example, um, Fallout New Vegas, like, that's what I've been playing all morning my favorite way to play those games is after you get to level 20, I flip on the Explorer perk, and then I just go to locations, right? And I just walk around. I like that structure a lot more because I'm a lot, I'm like planning it out more. When, but prior to that, the game actually got on my nerves a bunch because it was, it was very linear. Like there's that linear path to uh, Las Vegas that you take, and then you go to the casino and the guy with the, Goofy accent tries to kill you. My spo- ah, crap! Spoiler alert! My bad. <laughs> That's like a little late. <laughs> it, it might be a little late, but have you ever played New Vegas? I'm sorry, my I have not gotten around to it, but I've read more than my fair share of it. So, well, uh, it's just like Fallout Three. Uh, that it applies to that one. Have you played that one? I haven't gotten around to that either. I have a really large backlog of hundred-hour RPGs. Oh, they, uh, you know, don't feel bad. I mean, I haven't, uh, you're into Bioware games, right? Uh, uh, the more old school ones are some of my favorite games of all times, yeah. I That's like a conversation. I never did Dragon Age. I I played Mass Effect 2 for like 30 minutes and didn't really like it. And so at this point, they, and they're so huge now. Like, they're people talk about those games more than anything else, and I still... Just like haven't really gotten around to it. I kind of like Mass Effect One, but uh, that was sort of all I needed of the experience. I liked Knights of the Old Republic. That was fun. <laughs> yeah, but, people, I mean, people just stare at you if you say that. They're like, "Yeah, any idea how old that is?" And I was like, 10 years, twelve." It's about that. <laughs> yeah. But I, I'm still on Baldur's Gate One and Two, so. <laughs> Ooh, those are fun, man. Those are. I don't want to. How far are you in Part One? And number one, I've played it like three or four times. I've dumped way more than 100 hours over constant playthroughs, and I've never beaten it. I always like get like the wrong build, or I I lose a I lose my save file in a in a hardware switch or corruption. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I I know so much about so many of the details in that game. I know the maps so many of the maps by heart, and I'm still finding little insights, little just tricks and just fun things the developers created this world with. Now, that's interesting to me is I've actually, I've noticed this with a bunch of my friends. Uh, how much are you playing old games these days? Honestly, well, I, w- I actually did get through quite a few GOG games uh, at the in the fall of last year, but then uh, uh, the uh, PS3 backlog realized, oh, I better play some of these still in the shrink wrap, otherwise that would be a lot of wasted money and gifts. But yeah, it's like the real focus has been on older games because they're simpler, they don't crash my video cards. 
<laughs> and they're, in a lot of ways, a lot quicker to get through. I've just been playing them a lot recently, and it's kind of fascinated me. I'm trying to think. I played The Darkness, too. I rented that. that was It was fun, but just my fascination with older games, and I don't know if it's because I'm turning into an old crank or... Like, I don't really do multiplayer that much. The last game I dumped, like, heavy skill development time into was Magic 2012. And I, you finally get to that point where a 12-year-old is making fun of you on the game, and you just are sort of like, I've, I've made, I've wasted too much time here. Well, with Magic 2012, to, even to me, I, I have played Duel of the Planeswalkers, but that, to me, that's a throwback to all the time and energy I spent in the physical card game. So even that's a, an older game to me. Well, it's like fascinating, like, the people are, like, making fun of you for losing at it, and you're like, you know the game's pure luck, right? And they're sort of like, well, no, I mean, there's still skill. And I'm like, well, the decks are all pre-made, so we're not talking about developing, like, technique or deck or everything. To me, those games were, once you get to a certain skill proficiency where you basically know exactly what to do given any hand, like... Uh, to me, they just sort of reduced down to, you know, if you got land burned or whatever, you're going to die. Uh, I guess we get shift gears a little. Um, I, I know this is kind of a big gear shift, but you were like a very influential figure in, back in the day when there were so few names drifting mm-hmm. around the video game blogosphere. You were one of the big ones, one of the titans, if, if I can be so poetic there. Yeah, oh, thank you, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it's like... Every time you, like, come out with a new series, I had to just, like, okay, here's all the links for later viewing, and I just made a blog post about it. Yeah, no, I remember. I appreciate that a lot. Thank you. And one of the series that you did, especially, this seemed to, like, focus a lot of people's attention on what, like, criticism was and what you were trying to do with it, was when you started doing, like, the histories of other, critis- of other critics, Paul LaCale and Lester Bangs. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't remember who else you did it. Uh, how did those I did a series... Samuel Johnson one, but I, that one I didn't try to pitch to Pop Matters. I was like, this is pretty... I, mean, I think is... I found that one on your blog and put it in the collection anyway. <laughs> that, that guy, he was fun, but he's not for everybody. I, I respected that. So, like, what, like, went into that, and what drove you to look at other critics from different mediums to see how it could work in video games, or how the development of video game criticism would come? Well, the, let's see, Chuck Kloster wrote that his big essay, and it kind of was like, I was kind of just seizing on a tangent he went on, but he was saying that and back then there wasn't really a centralized video game critic. Like, there wasn't really any, like, particularly, like, big, famous one. I think now uh, that's not so much the case. Like, there wasn't really a celebrity critic, like, the concept, because... Even when he was writing, there were lots of, like, really good video game critics, but what he was talking about was more, you know, there was no, like, idolized one. You didn't have, like, a Yahtzee back then or anything like that. And it's not to say, and it's not, uh, I don't think Lester Bangs or Pauline Kale were necessarily the best film critics. I think they had, there was a couple of years, Kale for, like, a decade was the top of her field, and then, like, the last 20 years, she sort of, uh, she just, you know, a lot of critics will just get kind of dated in their tastes, you know, and they're not just keeping up with the times. But Kale was really like had her thumb on the 60s, 70s film era. 
and just sort of getting out from like the oppressive, like conservative regimes. And then, you know, Bangs was just crazy. So Bangs is more like Yahtzee in the sense that, you know, he just had Cream magazine and he would just, you know, write an article about why the Beatles sucked or something like that, you know, and it would sort of. He was also a stand up comedian. Yeah, like he had a huge, I mean, he would just like play instruments on stage and like he just called it noise music and he would record it. He was a bit more of a character, but so anyways, uh, Chuck Klosterman writes that essay and so I was like, well, I guess I should go research them. And both of them were really fascinating to learn about. You sort of, you know, I mean, you sort of, I read about like a lot of the stereotypes and stuff like Pauline Kale, for example, was really unusual partially because she kept at it for so long. That was one of the things that really surprised me was uh, towards the end of her career when people started to really rage on her, it was interesting how people were sort of like, inevitably, you know, you just get burned out. And I don't know, I can't speak for all game critics, I know that some people just seem to like be able to take it like champs, but at a certain point, like your taste, it starts to become work, if that makes sense. And it sort of, you quit like sort of writing about how much you enjoyed it or how like pleasing or engaging you found it. And instead you kind of talk about sort of like your ideal of like what enjoying it would have been like. And you kind of see that with Kale, like in her later essays, like, you know, her best book is How I Lost It, the movies. And that just has some phenomenal film criticism in it. And then towards the end, she just, uh, uh, you know, she really didn't like modern cinema. Uh, you know, she hated Star Wars and things like that. Like, she was kind of, like, didn't wasn't fitting in as well. And, you know, Bangs didn't go through that because he just dropped dead. So he dodged that bullet. Uh, you know, it's like that goofy Batman quote, right, where uh, you get to see yourself become the villain after a while. Like, Kale became the established taste, and, like, her whole career was built on fighting that, like, when she was younger. No, I get that. If that made sense, I'm probably kind of rambling. So when you study, like, a art critic or thing like that, and you trace their whole trajectory, it really is kind of, there's, like, a pattern to it. Like, it starts off, and they're, like, really wild and progressive, and then, like, steadily you kind of become the establishment, you know? I wonder if because of the internet tends to move faster than any other history on Earth, if, like, just in this few years that we've been going on, if, like, you see, like, the critics of, I hesitate to say, but your era, or, like, the Yahtzees coming out, and the movie bobs who emerged early on, if they haven't become the establishment in their views. I'd say, yeah, I'd say so. I mean, you know, going back to your point about you know, uh, me being a big figure and everything like that. There's this great Charles Bukowski poem, but he's referencing, like, in American literary history, like, you have, like, Hemingway, T.S. Eliot, like, that sort of list of names, you know, it's sort of like that Midnight in Paris crowd. But the thing about it is, is it's really easy to stand out if you're in, like, a small crowd. Now, uh, there are just so many good websites operating, producing solid material that... I think it's a lot harder to stand out, and furthermore, like, the more you have that many options and choices, the more people will kind of naturally, like, block them out. So, 
in terms of like becoming the establishment, it's more of a question of just kind of steadily becoming the one person everyone checks, you know? I guess you could say the tyranny of choice in that. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, the, that's one of the funny things about rule systems, period, is that, you know, people like options, but they don't actually like choosing. So, and that's true of everything. They were doing uh, studies on, what do you call those, footnotes? And so, uh, you're an academic, right? Uh, not officially. Well, footnote culture is that whole thing where you get a group of academics together and they all start citing each other. So it's sort of like what it was like, you know, three or four years ago with game criticism. And what happens is statistically a couple of those people will just randomly kind of get fixated on and they'll start to aggregate being footnoted by other articles. And you know, they were like doing uh, questionnaires with a professor citing them. Half the time they hadn't even read what they were citing to. It's just because everyone else cited to it, you know, they had, they felt like they had to do it. And you can see this in academia, like literary references. It's this kind of natural aggregation, I guess. So what happens is when you keep making your pool bigger and bigger is the aggregation gets more and more intense or it looks intense anyway. So, you know, everyone kind of has their knee-jerk sort of female critic that they reference or their um, video one that they like a lot, you know, like all the, the gamer subculture issues. But it's just this sort of weird statistical process. That's, that's interesting how you put it, where we keep referencing the same people or the same pieces. Mm. Well, the, I mean, the thing is, is it's not uh, an exercise in skill necessarily. I think that a lot of it can be attributed to luck. And that was, I mean, Bukowski's poem, what I started that tangent off on was that it was basically just winning the lottery after a while. Once you get your, like, the aggregation gets so intense. Uh, do you still keep up with uh, game criticism? Because you disappeared for about a year or so when you uh, went to go, what was it, your law test the bar exam yeah <laughs> oh geez we're, we're jumping around i kind of i've been going for almost three years straight of writing a weekly column and that'll do funny things to your head if you ever try to set up that kind of marathon and be in law school at the same time it kind of it's like towards the end i started to have like pretty significant collapse like burnout you know and I, I contacted my editor and I was like, uh, between this, the bar, and the fact that like I kind of, oh, I think I'd just been playing Dead Space One over and over again and like ratcheting up the difficulty. And my editor was like, what do you want to write about Dead Space One? It's like, no, it, there's nothing to say. This game's silly. <laughs> like, I wasn't. And I'm not knocking the game. Obviously, I liked it, but I was like, I think something deeper is going on here. You just couldn't say anything, and it was just there to be filling the time. Yeah, like I just, I just wanted to play a game, and so like I picked up Dead Space, and like I remember like I had some notes written out, and it was like Necromorph bad. Why am I doing anything? And then yeah, you know, just like screw this, <laughs> circled. Because <a few> <laughs> you just start to. I mean, I've done so much, man. I was last night was like flipping through some of my old articles trying to like jog my memory. And I was like, Jesus, like the architectural articles. I got obsessed with like space theory 
That was always, I mean, for me as a critic, you know, it was, I was never quitting. It was almost kind of like, I'm always bopping around to new uh, angles and perspectives. Like my big obsession now is like system theory. Uh, I was reading a bunch of Donella H. Meadows and uh, I, as a female academic, I can't remember her name, but she did some amazing advertising theory. But the problem with that is, is because I'm always changing gears, I'll kind of like build up a, the basic ideas, but rather than like stay and I guess keep uh, refining it and get, making it so I'm practice at it, I get bored and like jump to something else, you know? Honestly, I think that's what actually made you such a great critic is that you laid so many early foundations to so many different thought processes that everything just seems like it's either a retread or it's somehow connected to the ideas that you explained simply when you came to them. Gotta warn you, I'm a very good thief. So I did, I cite very, usually I was very good about telling where I was jacking the ideas from. I, I yeah, you could usually tell what you were reading at the time by <laughs> yeah. what you were writing. That was a, I mean, I, it always just kind of regurgitates out, like it goes down into the subconscious and then uh, pops back out. So, well, that's how it works. Yeah, and it's a shame because I was all the time I'll think I'll have thought up some brilliant idea, and then I'll just find out like, oh, I read that in this book like six months ago, you know. But I do, I do take. The thing about video games that was tricky was, like, taking all these other people's ideas and figuring out how to, like, apply them. You know what I mean? Oh, no, absolutely. It's trying to figure out what they were saying and figuring out how it relates to what you're thinking and then explain it through the lens of whatever you've been playing. Well, if you take, like, that original point about the Shakespeare thing, if you try to, if you try to write, approach it like it's an English paper, you bump into, like, linearity. I, always in the comments, there'll be someone saying, well, I didn't play the game that way. And so you have to develop a different way to make literary comparisons. It's not, um, it's not like one to one. Like, you have to sort of acknowledge that, you know, there's, like, different things going on in games and, you just go to other people's ideas. I mean, you know, I would jump to, like, architecture, psychology. I had my really weird-ass young phase where <laughs> I wrote the dream essays. But in all of this, it, it seems that uh, recently you started, when, when you came into system analysis, it seems like your lawyer influence started to come into there. Did your background as a lawyer influence how you were reading and cr criticizing video games? Man, I think uh, for the first year, for a lot of law school, how I understood law was through video games. Law is very boring and not fun. Now I kind of love it, but I remember when I first started, I really hated it. And I was reading a lot of Ian Bogost back then, and I just his ideas about like procedures and uh, what is that programming language called uh, where you have unit operations? Yeah, unit operations. That started to really uh, form my lens for how I understand law. And somewhere around, I think by like the third year of criticism, the shift started to happen. And that was when I started to not focus on plot as much and sort of like my English major roots started giving way and the lawyer, like the merger started to really happen because, you know, you just read it and read it for years and it does sort of take its effects on you. And you just kind of start to have a, I wouldn't say it's like a mechanical worldview, 
but you see everything in terms of its relationship to other things. Uh, yeah, it, you can sort of trace how the, the, I guess, the debate or the consensus of of each piece, and now we're sort of up, thank, after last year's GDC, we're sort of up to dynamics and the interactions of single attributes mm-hmm. as the point of meaning, rather than individual elements, That's, as it was a few years ago. I mean, that's sort of the biggest... When if I get anytime I see like a game critic and if I ever like strike up a conversation with them in their web page, I'll usually you know the biggest problem they'll bump into, particularly like a beginner, is focusing on like one to one things. So like with the Zelda point, you know it's not that the analogy is incorrect to say that Ganon and someone like a Hemingway character, I don't know, or like Faulkner Sutpin, it's not that it's wrong to compare the two. It's that it's about their relationship with everything else that makes it kind of difficult. I feel like that's sort of the big misstep is that like you have to look at it in the terms of this whole picture of how it's going on. Maybe that yeah. didn't make sense. <laughs> no, no, it, it, it's very interesting. It's just, what can you really say to that? It's, I'm nodding my head. Well, let's, I can, system theory has been a real fun discovery. I had, um, and now I tell you, it's the damnedest thing. I can't get it out of my head. It's all I see now. It kind of ruined Fallout New Vegas for me because I let's see. I was reading a bunch of Donella H. Meadows. She's an MIT number junkie who wrote some really good books on systems theory. And after I read her book, it was like it was everywhere. So I was playing Chrono Trigger, and I was like, oh yeah, it's just like she said. It's a big system. And so I wrote that article. And now it's it's like coloring my whole view of games. It's become I yeah, I feel like I've like gone all the way to the other spectrum. Like when I first started, I mostly just talked about plot, and now I've kind of I'm trying to somehow reverse the process of now all I do is talk about design. Yeah, I remember uh, what was it? It was two years ago in 2010 when you sort of hung up your reins at Pop Matters. Yeah, that was, that was the bar was just too much for me. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I know, but it was like such. I don't know. To me, it was just such a depressing moment. Like one of the stalwarts is uh, retiring or taking taking a leave of absence, as it were, from the critical world. And you, you gave away a farewell point, which uh, I'm looking here. It was called on design centric game criticism, and you were trying to like explain for like you were like leaving behind something <laughs> and you wanted to <laughs> this is how I remember it and probably if I reread it it might still be in that direction where you were trying to leave something behind is it this is my explanation of where I am at this is what my work has built up or led to and this is kind of what I think so take with that what you will adios I remember I was like fussy about it then because that was a uh... 2010 was still when the big, I wouldn't say the narrative movement, I'm trying to think of the way to describe it. 2010 was kind of when the dream was turning bitter in terms of, like, when I, like, describe, like, the history of the past 10 years of games, I'm like, well, what happened was the Bioshock and all of these games with stories that weren't bad came out. And we all got really pumped about them. And then by about, like, 2010, I just remember starting to get sort of fed up with it. Like, there was the Modern Warfare games kept getting more and more popular. And the plot games kept, like, not 
you know, it's just like kept producing such strange and funny, awkward like productions, you know, like I'm not saying it's not to like knock. I don't want to like knock any individual one, but I feel like the genre was starting to balk into its limitations in a weird way in terms of how much a triple A blockbuster game is going to be able to do in terms of the, the whole like film novel comparison. Like they were still trying really hard to be movies. Mm hmm. So, uh, to me, I design criticism was a way that I kind of, I began to enjoy video games a lot more when I started trying to, you know, I remember when I was doing a write-up on Halo Reach, and I was debating, like, talking about this story or not, and I was like, I feel like ragging on this game for, like, having a bunch of war cliches and stuff is almost kind of, it's, like, unfair, you know, it's, like, it's cruel to it, because it's such a good game, I love Halo games, and I mean, that kind of mentality was starting to take over. So I know when I wrote that last post, I was just sort of like, maybe we should start acknowledging, like, that if a game has a dumb story, it's okay. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I remember Just Cause 2, which is an absolutely great game, got ragged on because it's plot, you know, it's kind of incoherent nonsense. And people like getting pissy with Fallout 3, and it's like, Fallout 3 is a great game. The plot has its ups and downs. There are elements I've enjoyed to it. I mean, it's cool that Liam Neeson was my dad and everything, but to just kind of, to, to dismiss a game solely on that basis was like starting to really frustrate me. I remember that distinctly. So I, to me, I was sort of trying to keep finding ways to appreciate a game's design and its system, and I was very, yeah, I eventually came to what I'm doing now. And uh, when you made your grand return, as it were, uh, where did you uh, where did you set up shop? I haven't really set up anywhere. To be honest, my work schedule as an attorney is just very up and down. So I I post on my personal blog a lot. I think that what got me back into it was gamification became really big, and I was reading a lot of legal philosophy, which is. Uh, incredibly boring. I do not recommend it for anyone. But that, I mean, that was rule theory was starting to get really big. And you're starting to see different people come out of the woodwork and say that I think gamification has, you know, there's like some problems to it. And it's as simple as the statement when you take like all the things that make a video game work and put them in the real world, there's, you know, some hiccups in the process. And that was back when you had those guys promising, like, you know, gumdrops and candy to everybody. So that kind of prompted that series. And I just do it all on my personal blog now. I've done a few pieces with Gamers with Jobs. I did a few articles with Kill Screen. Uh, they aren't returning my calls these days. I think that I probably was a little too weird for them. Oh God, I don't. I mean, I don't know that for certain. I probably just have like fallen off their radar. I I work a lot now, man. I hate to say it. I'm trying to think of some, like, poetic way to say I work too damn much now. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like, well, you know, there's a lot of things going on. And uh, <laughs> basically, when I get some free time and a cool idea, I'll write a, an article. And nine times out of ten, I just throw it on my blog. I'm just looking through uh, several of your old, the titles, the older articles. And uh, you took a, a view on new games journalism a couple of years ago. Oh, that they, do people still call it that? Is that the term still used? I remember I haven't seen it in ages. Well, the, the the idea of it sort of fell out of favor because there was a lot of well crap new games journalism coming out, or people didn't really understand what it was trying to accomplish, 
and they thought it was just stories with the, you as the protagonist in whatever virtual world, and they didn't quite understand that there was supposed to be a point behind it. Mm-hmm. And I guess the glut just sort of killed it. But yeah, we don't have another term for it, so... I think it just has become commonplace now. I think yeah, the idea of devoting an entire article to it, I think, would probably seem kind of silly. I mean, to me, it sort of was never something that I would ever... I never wrote something that was 100% me, like, writing the first person about my game experience. It was something that you would kind of blend in now. Most of the people I see who are the real talented ones, what is that? Tom Bissell, you know, he'll take, like, an individual moment where he's, like, playing the game and he has, like, sort of some event, like an L.A. Noir, for example, when, you know, he's just sort of like, I'm sifting through, like, beer bottles and, you know, all of a sudden it hits you, you know, like, what am I doing in this game? I think in new games, journalism has just become a really great way to sort of talk about, like, the when a game has a really profound moment, like, when it all comes together. So uh, that, I don't think that many people would, like, devote a whole article to it, you know? It, uh, to me, it seems like it's all, it's like a blend of spices, you know? It's just a great technique. But you don't, you don't feel it's a discipline anymore, but rather just a tool at this point. You know, it's just my opinion. I can't... There weren't too many times that I ever saw anyone pull off a article that was 100% pure NGJ. I mean, I the like handful of ones I linked to in that article for Pop Matters are probably still the best ones. That was the, the Rock Paper Shotgun guys put those together. It's just unusual. Like, the thing I commented on in that article is that it was like... It really is like rare stuff in like real life in general like the article about like planet side and like the server crash and everything i mean i can't imagine anyone having anything profound to say like that and wow except there's that one great video of the people trashing that funeral i don't know the latest version of wow it's kind of just gotten a little bit too much theme park-esque but basically to me ngj was sort of yeah just something you add together with other elements and I was going to ask, it's like, uh, I'm assuming you still, like, read video game criticism when you have the time, the bloggers and the such. Mm-hmm. Who are your favorite critics, or were your favorite critics if they're not writing anymore? Let's see. I read Rock, Paper, Shotgun pretty regularly. I like John Walker a lot. I actually don't agree with him that much, but he's so good. Uh, <laughs> he's such a nice writer. That's That's really refreshing. I... You know, I use Reddit a lot. I lurk mostly. I used to hang out in the lawyer forums there, but I got into one too many arguments with people, and I can be kind of opinionated. But the their our Ludology, they post a lot of good stuff in there, and I'll usually read something off that. I think I've seen your website on there. Is that Nightmare Mode? It's one of the few I write for, yeah. Yeah, I've seen some of your stuff on there, and... Part of the trick with me is I usually will avoid articles if I haven't played the game. So this goes back into our modernity issues. You know, if I've been playing Fallout New Vegas, I'm going to hit the 100-hour marker soon. They don't write articles about Fallout anymore. <laughs> the, I, well, you can always look think, them up. I think Tom Bissell has become really good, and I didn't even like his book at all. It was He was very... Actually, I guess he would be kind of an interesting example of NGJ. 
his book, I guess, would be an exhibit of my point about it doesn't really sustain itself for a whole article. But his stuff now has just been really huge. Like, he'll talk about everything. I think he's actually started to really get the idea of... I remember his film noir write-up. Because, you know, in many ways, film noir is a fascinating game to play because it's like it's so linear it's in this giant open perfect la creation yeah and it's not I, I mean i didn't dislike the game it just it was so strange you know like you're sitting there and it's like that the actors are beautifully animated but your like dialogue choices were really strange and he used that game to really talk about the fundamental issues about narrative and game is that is like all right, so when you interact with your, like, film, you know, fundamental issues start to happen. And he talks about, you know, just the idea of even, like, trying to, like, identify with your protagonist is difficult to work around. Because, oh, the big point Bissell made at the end was he was like, uh, the story to L.A. Noir is a lot better if you quit trying to like the character, uh, the Cole Phelps. Well, that's generally true of noir. Yeah, exactly. And that, but he was talking about it's such a bump in a video game because I, you know, most of the time I can identify with them. You know, they're almost generically the most likable dip you can imagine. You know, like Zelda or not Zelda, Link smiling at you, you know, all the time. <laughs> Half these games now you can like change your outfits and everything to make it all like customizable. So. There aren't many games where I can think of, like, disliking the character I play as, you know? That almost just seems, like, counterproductive on some levels. And yet, you know, that's part of... That was almost intrinsic to the game, is that Cole Phillips is kind of a dick. Any other critics? It's sad, but I almost organized them more by website. Let's see. I can help you with that. Well, you know, yeah. I, a lot of it, I hang out on a Google group thing called Buzz Country... And that was a bunch of other people who, a lot of them have mellowed out over the years. When I first joined, it was a pretty rabid site, and I think a lot of people just went there to vent, you know? But these days we have, it's pretty mellow. We just have, like, pretty in-depth discussions, and that's James Shermer, um, Andrew Sullivan, Darius Kazemi. Kazemi, I don't know if I'm saying his name right. He'll, he'll probably be pissed about that. Uh, I, Eric, Huh? I can't help you with that. Yeah, no, I don't, I'm not sure how active he is on Twitter or not. It's tough for me, man. I have a lot of trouble with social media. I uh, I had had to nuke my Twitter account because it was kind of just got uh, too much for me after a while. Oh, uh, that was a disappointment for me. I it was something I'd thought about for a long time, but um, it read like really stresses me out. I don't know. I think I. I was starting to get to an all-time high of, like, absolute strangers sending me messages. I'm always amazed when, like, Michael Abbott or Lee Alexander or, like, all those public figures can just endure that, you know? Like, I don't know, you know, because it takes, like, five seconds for someone to sort of, like, argue with you on Twitter. And I just, it would just get, to like, to be overwhelming for me after a while. Stress of law school and everything. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't any like specific thing. It just was, it was kind of getting to a point where I think Twitter was the first thing I deleted. And then after a while, I was like, I'm going to have to like take a break from this period. No, I, I, I understand it. I was just like disappointed. Oh, he's, he's disappeared. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, you were one of the people I looked up to, and then when you like sort of shift out, I don't know. To me, I may be over over romanticizing it, but I sort of like have a passing of an era. Yeah, I'm way. I mean, to me, that was that will always be a really unique era. I think in any culture, when it's still small like that, and you sort of can like see the whole interaction between like groups of people and everything, it's so large now, and just different factions and ideas. Uh, I mean, I, some guy I was reading that like procedural reddick is like falling out of favor now, and I was like, Jesus, how long is that? Did that take? But that. uh yeah, no, I totally agree, man. That was a really wild time for me. I was just sort of possessed. I was obsessed with it for a while. Yeah, it's like every Tuesday. That's L.B. Jeffrey's day. That's when the new piece comes out. <laughs> I'm trying to think. So what, I mean, I guess where do you see video, like what video games are you interested in these days? What's picking up? Are you going to go for Mass Effect 3? That's, I, I should be asking you that. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> well... The thing that fascinates me about games is, you know, you had that period where it looked like Zynga was going to take over, and that was, you know, we all lost some sleep over that, I'm sure. And now, and, and I, like, the backlash is, like, well, they still have the numbers and the money. It's like the cultural backlash has inserted in as more people are realizing there's not a whole lot there. They just keep making the same game, man. I, I mean, I feel bad for them because it's like they have this amazing platform, and... Uh, their mobile apps are solid. Like I don't, you know, I'm not. I wouldn't rag on them too hard. But in terms of, like, their business model was just absurd. Like, I mean, if you like ever, I remember when I read the article about them, and everyone, you know, everyone's like treating it like this will always be a sustainable way to make money. And I'm like, that's crazy. Your whole platform is five percent of your users are crazy enough to spend money on this crap. Like that's the that's that's what it is. That's what free to play is in a nutshell. Is that the vast majority of users don't pay any money. They just bonk around. But enough people are competitive enough and crazy about it enough that they'll spend money on like this pretend crap and then keep playing the game that way. And it is kind of it's just a little bit strange when you say that, and because you're sort of like that can't possibly like last very long you know what i mean no no i get i get what you're saying that article was written by you by the way yeah the mass appeal of farmville i guess to me it just and i, I mean i'm kind of it makes me nervous because so many games are going down that road now and i don't know maybe i'm just totally off base i mean league of legends is a really good game it looks like people are still filling out uh figuring out a good formula for it but with Zynga, they kind of crashed, and what was the point I was making? <laughs> I don't know. It's fun just to hear a good a good person ramble. I don't know oh, where I see video games going. Anyways, I mean, I just knocked out Dear Esther. I loved that, and I, that was a, that PS3 game Journey about being the Star Wars person walking across the desert. <laughs> yes. That's uh, probably, I know they have like a proper fiction for it, but I just got to play it for a little while. I guess the big thing I see happening, which is kind of blissful, is you sort of see games focusing on just being good at one thing more and more. That's, I mean, Dear Esther does not try to accommodate anyone. Like it doesn't, it doesn't have puzzles. It doesn't have anything except walking around in a really gorgeous level build. And that's kind of 
I mean, to me, Journey, I remember the Eurogame review was really interesting that it said it should have just ditched the game stuff. And that's, I kind of see the medium people, particularly with the indie movement, thanks to Steam as a distribution model and uh, the indie fund and all these things. You have games now that aren't trying to be as appealing to everybody possible. And, like, for example, I mean, I was playing Assassin's Creed Revelations, and it's just got, like, massive feature creep, right? Like, I, I don't even know. Like, half the... I played the game for, like, five hours, and, like, a month later picked it back up, and I, I almost had to restart the game because I had to... I just had all this crap that I forgot about. Like, I was like, oh, yeah, I've got Assassins off in Europe. I need to go deal with that. And so... What's interesting to me is that I th hope what I'd like to see is just more of that narrowing of focus and to quit, you know, like the Modern Warfare games, like it looks like they're going to just ditch the single player pretty soon, which or like start splitting it up because you've got the elite stuff that's turning into basically an MMO subscription service. And then you'll probably still have campaigns coming out, but you do kind of appreciate it. It's like just focus on one thing and be good at it. That's your view of the current state of the uh, video games as a medium. What do you think the current state of game criticism? You know, an art critic's only as good as the artwork, man. <laughs> that was always my joke about it, is that uh, if you've got, I think as long as there are interesting games to talk about, I think it, you can trace the quality of the writing, to me, almost is based on the game. So I think a really good game like, I guess L.A. Noir wouldn't necessarily be called a not good in the sense of like our common understanding of like it was fun and engaging, but a really interesting game, like a game that's trying to do things artistically. So, I mean, I don't think anyone would argue that L.A. Noir was definitely trying to do stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think when those kind of games come out, they always produce really interesting write ups. I think Dear Esther, I've seen some really interesting stuff and that's almost like, I think uh, any critic, you're only as good as the game you're writing about. So, uh, not to, like, infuriate anyone, but I was not really that impressed with Skyrim, for example. I um I like Bethesda games, but, I'd, I like I said, I just like the walking around and, like, exploring part. The talking to people stuff I find really tedious because there's so much system information. But, uh, to me, it's sort of, dear Esther... Yeah, was able to produce a lot more interesting discussions because it wasn't trying to be this like massive like game that appealed to everyone. You were just able to walk around and explore. So like that focusing, you know, it makes it so you can have a clearer message. Your story's a lot clearer. I'm still not totally sure what any Bethesda game I've ever played is supposed to be about. You know. I mean, most people, if you, like, try... I mean, most people would get offended if you judge Skyrim based purely on its story, right? Like, they'd be like, you're missing the point of the game. Yes. I remember Pop Matters had a really... I mean, I still read my alma mater, of course. But I remember one article that I really liked was, I think Bethesda games would be better if they just ditched the quests. And people were like, no, the structure... And I know that kind of goes against my Okami point, but it is kind of... I think starting to hold them back in a certain sense because it does kind of turn everything into you're not really talking to people. You're just hitting them up for information. 
And there, and there, there we go with the, you're trying to appeal to an RPG player, which wants one kind of thing. Then there's the exploratory people, and then you've got the stealth builds and everything. And I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to make a game with lots of options, but, you know, that, I mean, that's just nuts. There's so many different people you're trying to make simultaneously happy. Too many cooks in the kitchen, sort of thing. Maybe. I don't know. It, you know, going to the original point of you're only as good as the game, I think that it makes it so that the game doesn't do, it doesn't like stick out much. Like it doesn't do much of any one particular thing. You know, you take something like Portal 2, and I, I remember being kind of almost fascinated by how uninteresting most of the writing about it was because the game was just so well designed. Like uh, they play tested it to hell, you know? And it's sort of like by making it so broadly appealing, it almost makes it bland. Like the nothing about it uh, to me, and I know that you probably some hardcore Portal Two fans. Nothing yep. about it was particularly like stuck out or was very remarkable. The co-op was fun. I remember getting into really big fights with my friends, but the single player, I just remember being sort of. And the term isn't underwhelmed, because it was funny, um, that guy, the comedian's funny, and GLaDOS and everything. It's just that, I'm trying to think of an analogy to describe this. Do you know what StatCom is? No. Uh, NPR did a great story about this, but whenever you start using metrics to analyze your system, that's where you just start harvesting data and then start calculating your responses based on the data, so... Police officers will build this big data map of a city where all the crime's taking place. And if there's a lot of crime on a block, they'll just, you know, send more patrol cars, right? Yeah. And the problem with it is, is you'll get really good results at first from it. And it'll totally drop the crime and everything will like, you'll just like relocate everything. And it'll cause this huge change up in the system. But what happens is you can only get so much improvement out of it. So, like, for the example of crime, you know, this, the underlying problems of poverty and the reasons people commit crimes are still there. Like, you didn't fix crime. You just put cops where a bunch of crime happens a lot of the time. And then Taking it just that, moves. Yeah, and so when you take something like Portal 2, you sort of... It's like you squeeze out all of the player issues... In terms of, I never got stuck once in the game. I never had a single moment where I didn't know what was going on or what to do. But it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean the game wasn't kind of, I don't know, I'm trying to think of like missing something. Like it doesn't fix it necessarily if your game is like this fluid, awesome experience anymore. I mean, I feel like the novelty of that's kind of worn off. That was kind of a weird rant. I, I've been thinking about that a lot lately with systems theory because it is sort of the common assumption I think with video games is just, oh, if I just play test it enough and it's super smooth, everything will be fine. And so I'll get my stats up and lots of players are finishing the game and everything's good. But at the same time, you sort of that only fixes it so far. And it's sometimes the rough edges add a certain, I guess, je ne sais quoi to its quality. Yeah, ex well, exactly. Like, the the rough edges were sort of, like, you just end up sort of hiding everything from people. Like, I mean, it's, I know with Portal, I mean, 
getting stuck is part of the fun and like bashing your brain against it and then the satisfaction of, you know, completing it. Uh, that's, I mean, Dark Souls is another example of a game that's decided to just focus on something rather than try to have any sort of plot or any real explanation for something going on. It's like, no, look, this is a really intense dungeon grind. I kind of want to, I think you sort of answered this already, but what is good criticism in your eyes? Like, what? what's like a fundamental thing about it? Like, what does it do? What does good criticism do? Oh, geez. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm asking all the easy questions today. I know, and I've already gone off on so many tangents. I'm sort of like, tangents are good. Tangents are good. Yeah, I, I know. I'm throwing you diamonds here. <laughs> um, you know, uh, Pauline Kael said that good criticism, you know, is an art form and that it's a way that you kind of make it, make the work more inspiring, I guess. Like you, you make the people more engaged with it and enjoying things about it more. I think Lester Bangs was more oriented around getting people to notice things about it that weren't there. So he would always kind of talk about the politics. Like he like worried about the politics of the Clash's music a lot. And he talked about the fans and things like that. But, you know, and as I've gotten older, I mean, I went through all kinds of cynical ideas about it. I mean, sometimes I just felt like a glorified salesman, but I don't know. I think to me, it, the goal is just like say something like I interesting and new about it that this game helped you realize. And that can be an internal observation of, oh, hey, this game actually has something pretty profound to say that most people like sort of tuned out. Or particularly like with multiplayer games and stuff, I, I mean, I think it's really interesting to kind of talk about human nature in those. The more I play like first person shooters, I'm just continually fascinated by for some people, it's like doing a crossword puzzle, you know? Like, I mean, I have a buddy who's hardcore about them, and he just will, like, grok the map in, like, two or three plays. Like, it'll be like, choke point, choke point, guard here, people can get me here and here. And he's, like, he's done. And he just plays the map that way over and over. And so I like, I really like good criticism that talks about how people relate to something, you know, because I feel like that's, you know, I, will, I like that. Let's take that. I think good art criticism teaches me about how people relate to a piece of artwork and how that speaks to people in general. I mean, let's uh, human condition, you know. And the corollary, what would be bad criticism in your eyes? Mm, talking about yourself. No. <laughs> <laughs> I see that a lot. It, it's really tempting with video games. I always grit my teeth when people talk about themselves because that gets on my nerves a lot. And I, you have to. That's the one of the things that was really hard for me to accept for when I was first being a game critic. And I, well, I think one of the things about me was that I, I would have like three sentences just fessing up. It's like, I, A, I'm a human being. B, this is how I played the game. C, I didn't... You know, I remember like Mass Effect, I was like, I don't... I had to... I just kind of admitted, I was like, I, I don't know anything about Avatar creation. I play the guy off the box. You know, you almost feel like apologizing for it. Cause that was like when talking about what your Avatar looked like was really big, and I was like, I don't know. I don't think about it at all. And... Yeah, you know, just like you almost kind of have to admit to your play styles at this point. So I acknowledge that you have to talk about yourself to some extent, 
But God is in as much as reservation as possible, you know. Uh, doesn't it, doesn't it kind of go against what you thought of with uh, New Games journalism, though? I don't. I disagree because New Games journalism is. If I had something incredibly interesting happen to me in a uh, video game, like uh, with the Bow story and all the other ones. I, that's worth talking about, you know what I mean? Because those stories aren't about the person writing them, inevitably. And that was the thing I stressed in that article, is that it's not really the purposes of, of it isn't to record your individual experiences. And I sort of said, it, for example, that I am skeptical of doing new games journalism as a uh, single-player games, because it just seems so insular to me. Not that I've seen some people pull it off reasonably well, but I just think in multiplayer, I mean, people in multiplayer video games are so strange, you know, such awful behavior or really kind behavior, honestly. I've seen people be really nice. And uh, it also, I mean, that comes back to me as a lawyer, too, because I'm always fascinated about people's relationships with rules. Okay. As a concept, where do you think reviews fall into the realm of criticism? And I say as a concept, like, what re- like good reviews are and rather than what they are in the mainstream, on the mainstream sites. I think that at this point, a lot of the websites, particularly after the, we started to, I know Michael Abbott and for me and a couple of other people, when we started to really demonstrate that you could pull in really heavy traffic with uh, good criticism pieces... Once, I mean, we started to really show that, I think most websites started making room for it and being willing to experiment for it. I don't think that it was ever very fair to expect a video game review to go and to to be profound. You know what I mean? Because again, like I said, uh, to me, good criticism is only as good as the game you're talking about. So to me, I don't expect a lot out of reviews. I, I remember when I wrote them, I mean, I would write it and then a couple of days later revise it and then just kind of chuck it on the side. I never spent too much time on them because I just sort of, you just try to be informative. You know, this is the game. If you're buying this game, you probably liked X or Y. You know, you just, you try to give like a very informed opinion about a product. I, I, I guess I'm also a weird person to ask because you know, I'll usually just read the, like, I read Rock, Paper, Shotguns reviews. I like Destructoid. And I don't like them because necessarily I think that they're like geniuses. It's because they get to the point of, you know, I, I read their Darkness 2 review and they were like, it's a pretty formulaic shooter. The uh, upgrade chain is fun. If you dug the story of Darkness 1, which I did personally, um, they do really cool stuff with it in part two. So I was like, sold, you know, done. And that, to me, that's sort of, those websites, I think, do a good job now of making room for the criticism pieces. So there's not really the same pressure on reviews anymore. Well, particularly, I mean, with digital distribution, uh, one of my rules is that I never wrote about a game that wasn't a freely available online, if I could help it. That wasn't always true. But GOG, you know, made that all the more easier so that, you're still you're still helping the person out like it's still not a uh you know the big pressure on reviews is because they affect sales so much right supposedly yeah the give or take depending on how you want to look at it god knows i wish they kind of affected it more on when you try to tell them something sucks but 
the thing now is that thanks to digital distribution, if I wrote an article about like Hitman Blood Money, like when I wrote that piece, you know, that has they people can go buy the game. You're helping the developer. These people are still, you know, engaged. That might encourage them to make a sequel and you can influence the sequel. So I think that on some levels criticism kind of gets to occupy a more powerful niche than reviews now. Like it doesn't, I just see the distinction between the two very much of here's this game you might have missed and you can still buy it. It's really cheap now and fun as opposed to review, which is sort of like this game is out, uh, you know, it has X, Y, and Z. It's a shooter. It's pretty good one. The level design's solid. It's glitchy, you know, in terms of like how much I rank it being worth your money, I give it a seven. I, they're sort of different dialogues to me, I guess. When you said that criticism is only good as the material you're working with, don't you think that good criticism or good critiquing can come out of a very bad experience or a very bad game? You know, that's going to be something that people have opinions about across the map. I've I never, I very rarely wrote shred pieces. I wrote some brutal reviews just because that I, that was kind of the job. I've just never approved of it very much. I, Pauline Kale did it a lot. Lester Bangs did it. And I would read their stuff back then. This is one of the reasons I don't write them, um, is because I think that when they come out at the time and you're pushing against like PR and popular opinion or something like that, I think they seem really fulfilling and engaging, but you know, when I'm reading like a 20 year old article, Pauline Kale wrote shredding apart this movie that, you know, I've never heard of because she was right. I mean, the woman had good taste in film. The movie was stupid. No one remembers it today, but it wasn't illuminating at all. It was just her kind of trashing it for like bad stuff. And it's a thin line I just feel like it's very easy to overindulge in bashing it. So I don't know. To me, there's so many variables as well. I mean, someone like wrote a big article explaining why Doom 2 sucks. You're sort of like, well, I mean, it was an old game, you know, the culture and the times. So, well, it's, I bring this up because you have like entire circles of the internet who, focus upon the very bad this culture has come out and go into the meticulous detail explaining <laughs> extracting yeah. uh, mostly i'm thinking about they do this for movies and music but uh i guess you could say like what's his name the angry video game nerd and he mm-hmm. goes back and his main and the main plus side of what he does is showing that no the golden age wasn't all roses and sunshine there was a lot of crap and here's a detailed explanation why well like I said, I mean, it's doable. Like, no way take the statement I'm making to be that bashing a game can't be informative. It's just something that I've never, I don't care for as much. And if you're going to do it, to still, like, the struggle to be constructive, it's like with the Okami review, you know? I would sort of tried to, like, make a lot of, talk about, like, the game's strengths because it's, I feel like explaining why something is bad is such an inherently complex like argument that inevitably you just even if you're talking about whether something is good or bad you just talk it into neutral like particularly with a game because you're like taking it all apart you know if you're doing a good job and you're not just raging and just being like this sucks 
and making fun of how dumb it is. Because that would be, that's my fear, is like just sort of getting a couple of laughs for the sake of bashing something because it's fun. If you're actually like taking it apart and making points, uh, like, a, you know, like Yahtzee when he's actually like focusing on, like if he has a good game to talk about, he'll usually make a really good video or... Uh, there's a guy who does sequelitis. Have you ever seen those? I, I've seen. He, he doesn't have many videos in the series, but yeah, I've seen them. I think he does a really good job of, but the comparative analysis where you like compare it to something that's good, that to me is great. Like if you, I mean, if you're in a rage on Castlevania two like that, and he makes they're great videos because he makes those good points. That to me is what's important, and if you start doing that. Inevitably, your feelings about it end up just being kind of neutral. Like, after you watch the sequelitis videos, like, you don't really turn it off and think, oh my god, Castlevania 2 sucks. You think, wow, what interesting, like, decisions they made and look how they backfired. And, you know, that's something to watch for in other games and what an interesting culture. Yeah, it's still informative. What video games, like, in your history influenced your view of the medium the most? I think the darkness is probably. In terms of story, is probably still, I thought, the best, like, a man-shooter, male-centric, your girlfriend's getting shot, you know, like, that was about as good a story as those things were ever going to be able to accomplish, and it did a lot of neat tricks uh, with narrative and development and spacing to really put together a kind of grim, intense game experience, so that one was pretty... That was one of the ones that really made me start taking games seriously, I think. Let's see. Any earlier titles? Oh, you want to talk about, like, kid, like, back when I was a kid? Well, I no, was an adventure game cause, junkie. Because, uh, Darkness, you, you, like, the first thing you went to was the Darkness. It was, wow, 2006, really? Well, it's, you know what happened with me was I just played PC games. I actually... I mean, I had an emulator in college. I mean, Final Fantasy VI was fun. You know, I liked Chrono Trigger, but I never took console games very seriously growing up. And I mean, you can like judge that however you want. And I enjoyed them. Like I would, I I liked the JRPGs as a kid, but I just I played PC games mostly. I liked the adventure games, the Sierra games a lot. I loved the Lucasfilm ones. I loved your comparison between the two ethoses. Oh, I, I'm pumped about Tim Schafer and his two million. God bless him. If he does something interesting, <laughs> I don't even know what they're up to. They're like two point four at this point, maybe. Oh, jeez, that's a. I mean, that's a. That's an exciting development. I hope that works out. But I guess it's sort of like you've already made your money in a weird way because it's like all you have to do now is just produce something. It's pre-orders at this point. That's what it is. Pre-orders. Yeah. I'm curious about that business model. It's not gonna, it's gonna be hard for people. There's a, the interesting thing about Kickstarter and stuff like that is that, you know, you have to already be famous for it to really work out, you know? Or you have a short project you want to fund, but yeah. So. A small he, project, rather. He is uniquely in a position to capitalize on that. I remember the Gabriel Knight games, uh, in particular were really, I mean, because they're, like, really dark. There's a lot of, like, horror in them. They, they're they well-written. Uh, who's that? Uh, Jane Jensen. I did a write-up. I did a write-up on Gabriel Knight 2, actually, for Gamers with Jobs a while back. And, I read that. Uh, you know, those games I just have always really enjoyed. 
Oh, there's such good characterizations. And, you know, I'm a Southerner, so I loved uh, New Orleans. But even the second one, and I don't know if it's just because I'm getting older or what, the second one to me, I, because when I, you know, I played it as a kid and I'm just sort of like, cool, werewolves, yes. And you, you enjoy it on that level. But now when I go, I played it again, I was just floored by all the nuance and like the discussions about sexuality and loneliness and just how much was going on. So I imagine that probably primed some wires in my head. You know, Monkey Island 1 is still just an impeccable, beautiful game. I think of stuff that's not adventure games because that's what I grew up on. And then, oh, I, I did too. I was more the Sierra model though. Yeah, well, I did them all. I um, I me and some of my cousins and friends would just pool our money and buy a game and then pass it around. So I we I had this whole elaborate system. I mowed a lot of lawns, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I liked RPGs. The Crondor series was fun. Yeah, that seemed to be coming back in the public, or at least the critical eye, after a few videos and a few write-ups, and suddenly people are like, oh, Crondor's on GOG. And people just, it's very muted, but it's... Let's see, the Mind Magic games, those were fun. I never, I never beat one of those. I don't think I ever even came close they were just sort of, I remember when I played Daggerfall, I, I played it for like 30 hours and one of my friends was talking to me about the story and I didn't even know it had a plot. <laughs> I just was maxing out my elf guy and walking around dungeons and I had the same reaction to Might and Magic because particularly those old games, it was really easy to lose track of like what was going on. The Might and Magic, the Heroes of Might and Magic series is absolutely phenomenal. I Thank you, somebody go. else. Oh, I mean, nothing's come close. Like, part three, particularly, is... I actually... I, it's on the slush pile, but I was writing an article about the evolution of that series, and it was going great, and then I just played part three for, like, a month and, like, forgot what I was talking about. Yeah, number two is my is my go-to entry, The, the Succession Wars. There, it's fascinating the changes they made. I thought the best description was a dude on, or, you know, a person on YouTube was like, basically, Heroes of Might Magic 2 and 3 are the same game, except 3 is just, like, on crack. Like, it just gave Part 2 a bunch of speed. And I started thinking about it, and it's, I thought it was a good description, because if you look at 3... There's a bunch of range penalties, so they basically removed the archer advantage, where you you know you just sat there and like you'd have like yeah. they they kill that, they make it so everything has a ton of hit points, so there's not magic is not really that useful in here with mind magic three. It's still good, of course, but I mean in two, I remember you could like chain lightning and just wipe out his whole army. Yeah. And so the the interesting thing about that transition was basically they made it so in part three, you, it basically boils down to your monsters beating the crap out of each other. You can't just hang back. Yeah, but the, I, I haven't gotten to part three. I own it, but it's sitting in my two-play GOG list. I, I've tried no, I tried number one years ago after playing number two, and it was like after 30 minutes, I said, no, I can't play this. <laughs> Absolutely not. It's like I, you can't go backwards. Yeah, I don't think, 
I tried playing one and it was terrible. I mean, it's not the game's not terrible, but you know what I mean. Like, it's like this isn't the same. Just miss it. He says, "Like, wait, where's the where's the feature I, I like, and why are there's only three types instead of six, and the monster trees are simplified." And you realize, ah, oh, you can't go backwards. It's it's well with I mean, my Magic Three, I can't go forwards either. I the I've played four. Four, I mean, I don't, I can't make much sense of them. I've tried playing part five and six, and I don't understand what's going on in the game. It's like depressing. There's so many bars and graphs and menus. I, like, I don't understand how it works at all. It's kind of funny. It's because you can't just do the series with strategy games. You have to know, like, the culture of this other, of many, of other series from other companies and what innovations they brought to the genre. And if you don't have that, you sort of you you can't follow you can't follow one series at all. You have to like follow the genre. But Heroes of Might and Magic Three was a staple for me. I played that game for ages and ages, and I would just get together with my buddies and play together on maps. StarCraft. I was actually really good at StarCraft. I could do two on one and usually come out ahead. That was back in my prime, though. Uh, <laughs> Tried StarCraft Two. A little bit, but you know, for me, it was sort of I was never I was never even remotely competitive online, and so I was just sort of like ah, I played the campaign. It was for a couple of hours, and the plot was pretty stupid. Maybe I'll get around to it like once the Zerg expansion comes out. The other thing about it that bugs me is it's not finished. You know, they're kind of pulling that whole Assassin's Creed thing of ending on a cliffhanger, and I just find that kind of tedious. Like I. I mean, I like won't watch a TV series till it's finished these days, you know. It is getting to that point. Although all I heard out of that was I play Zerg. Mm. Oh well, they're hard to do. You have to be like a lot faster than other players to be good at Zerg. I liked Protoss because that. I mean, Protoss is for slow people. There's not as many units, you know. So I, and, I guess I just end this on the biggest fluff question of all: What's your favorite game of all time? <laughs> uh, Angry Birds. Uh, no. <laughs> hey, that could be a legitimate answer. I liked it. I mean, I wasn't. I understand that people are feel threatened by it because it represents, you know, this wholly different concept of gaming and what it's about. But you know, I think anyone who like plays it and like just is like disgusted by it. It's like, oh come on, that's fun. <laughs> no, I, I understand like you being. But like threatened by the, con- the the concept, but the game itself is actually no. It, it pretty much follows all the tenets of a good game and even a good, a somewhat solid artistic experience as a game. Mm. And you find yourself being just drawn into it. It's like, God damn you, pigs! I will. <laughs> yeah. Oh, did it have to be brick? Oh, they always get you with that. What game? What game? Um. Uh, I really like Magic the Gathering. I've been on break. I stopped playing the physical card ones, but I like the digital version a lot. I don't know if I'd say that's my favorite one. I don't know, man. Halo on Horde mode is still my favorite way to spend an evening. If you get a bunch of friends with you and, like, split it up four ways and just the... I like the variety of weaponry and things like that. Lots of games feature Horde mode now. I know the new Call of Duty and a couple of other ones do. But the thing that's so brilliant about Halo is 
the variety of enemies makes it so the game is so much richer. So, like a Call of Duty game, I, I play them and take them back to the shop usually, but you know, there's just there's just people. There's not like this huge ver- array of different monsters with different characteristics and things like that. So, yeah, it's just Nerf guns and like it's kind of a little bit childish, but. I just think it's great in terms of gameplay. It's absolutely still, I think, some of the best thing you can get out there. I, I think with all those multiple answers, you made different groups cheer and sob <laughs> at different points. <laughs> I'm trying to. I'm not. I'm trying not to get cornered out because it's like, well, maybe some new amazing thing will come out. And plus, I'm running the risk. Well, I'm scared Halo Four will suck. Is the other thing. So it's like I don't want this. <laughs> Well, unless you could think of anything else to like over your vast experience to impart to us plebeians. You know, I just, there's that great uh, Ira Glass mem I've seen a few times where he talks about getting started and how the hardest thing about art criticism is that you start off and you have this huge high standards from you that you got from your heroes. And then, like, when you start producing work, it keeps not meeting that same level. And for me, it's that's so true. And if you go back and look at my stuff, I like to think I got better. Hopefully, people think that. And it's not even necessarily an exercise in getting better, but uh, you just keep changing and adapting. So as a final statement to anyone out there is stick with it and keep trying new things. Read different books. I know all of my best ideas came from reading uh, academics who were not talking about video games at all and would probably be horrified to see their ideas used to talk about video games. Or maybe not. Who knows? I, there, there are a lot of legal philosophers out there who probably hate me. <laughs> <laughs> I, if they ever saw if the stuff I've been doing with rule theory... Because I mean, when you apply it to video games, it's so whacked out, you know? That's been fun, but yeah, I don't think they'd be thrilled. Well, I, I thank you for joining for this talk. It's like people say, oh, he, I have heroes. He's like, mostly I don't, but as a, as a critical hero, the person who unintentionally got me into video game criticism, you're just a big figure to me. And just to talk to you like this, it... it, it well, uh, thank you very much, man. I'm I'm very flattered, and I appreciate it. And you know, anytime I um, you know, I still work and write. These days, I'm doing a lot of like lawyer, legal philosophy stuff. But you know, I've been playing video games again, and um, I'm just kind of on my own schedule these days. I'm sorry, but it'll be good whenever I do post something. I'm sure it will. Uh, thank you for joining me. You can Kirk Battle, formerly known as LB Jeffries. You can find his stuff at Banana Pepper Martinis, which is for some reason LiteraryGameReviews.blogstop.com, right? I've got a that's that was back before video games got started, but yeah, you got it. All right. Thank you for joining me again for coming with this and putting up with my poor interviewing skills. No, it was, it was great, man. Thank you. It's really, it's been a blast.